This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. After several months of winter neglect, I recently scheduled an afternoon of beauty at my neighborhood nail salon. I treated myself to a manicure, a pedicure, an eyebrow wax, and a ten upright massage chair. Though I was looking forward to being pampered, I was rather embarrassed by my unruliness. I hadn't been taking particularly good care of myself, my hands and feet were unseemly, and my eyebrows seemed determined to finally, once and for all, intertwine into one long braid atop my face. I saved my brow wax for last, hoping the extra drying time would delay the inevitable smearing of my not-quite-dry nail polish. For the treatment, I was asked to lie down in a small private room furnished with a massage table covered in thin, crinkly white paper and a table covered by a large bowl of wax that would be used to remove my errant eyebrow hair. The cosmetician who had been working on me was petite and shy, and I profusely apologized about my scruffy state as she heated up the wax. She demurely excused my bedraggled body as she lined my brows with the scalding wax, quickly covered them with sticky tape, and abruptly pulled the hairs in one fell swoop. As she leaned into my face and tweezed off the last remaining hairs, she crooked her head and panned back from the table. Then she squinted and came closer. And with a sudden, triumphant smile, she looked me straight in the eye, and without missing a beat, she boldly asked me if I wanted her to wax my mustache. I felt my heart fall into my stomach as my hands raced up to my mouth. My mustache, I repeated. Yes, she evenly replied, your mustache. And with that... For the first time in my entire life, I let someone pour brutally hot wax on the thin skin above my upper lip, after which she ferociously tore the hair off of my terrified face. I am now closer to 50 years old than I am to 40. As my unwanted facial hair now proves, I am changing in ways I never thought possible. My hair is grayer, my stomach wider, and I don't even want to talk about my backside. I need stronger glasses every year. At night, I wear a splint for my right hand to alleviate my carpal tunnel syndrome and a mouth guard to protect my teeth from my incessant grinding. I put on so much gear before going to bed that I look like I'm going to play football instead of going to sleep. This, dear listeners, is the peril of aging. And this is new territory for me, this feeling old. When considering what it means to age, I try to console myself with the knowledge that older is wiser. I recently read that the late great fashion designer Coco Chanel always lied about her age. 
But rather than subtract a decade or so, she told people she was 10 years older than she actually was. This way people would always think she looked amazing for her age. I can't help but wonder why older can't also be better. With so many of my faculties beginning to falter, I can't help but wish that age could be accompanied by a mandatory memory upgrade and an overall boost in perceivable value. After all, there are so many, many things that we come to expect will improve with age and time. There is fine wine and marbly red meat and English gardens and redwood trees and postage stamps and baseball cards and comic books. There is art and literature and technology and even the stock market, at least until recently. Even Barbie, who is now 50, is more valuable than she was when she was launched. And yet, as humans age, we seem to get as crinkly and white as the cheap paper I was lying on in the salon. As I navigate through these fears, I realize that after all the years of wanting, after all the years of feeling bad about who I was and where I was and what I had and what I didn't have, I have recently come to the realization that I actually don't want life to end. Ever. And though I grimace when I look at myself naked and I have given up trying to read the small type on a menu, I do want to continue to get older. So what? I'm nearly 50. Big deal. Whether I'm fat or thin, rich or poor, or with more hair on my face than I have on my head, with each observation, with each day piled high on top of another, I am reminded that I still get to be right here as it all continues to unfold in front of me. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guest today is Patrick Coyne. Before we get started with our interview, please let me tell you a bit more about him. Patrick Coyne is the editor and designer of Communication Arts. Prior to joining CA in 1986, Patrick studied at the California College of the Arts. He also worked for Michael Mabry Design and SBG Partners. During his tenure at Communication Arts, Coyne has been a frequent speaker at design and advertising clubs, as well as local, national, and international design conferences. He has received numerous awards for his design and art direction. In 2004, he, along with Gene and Richard Coyne, received the AIGA, AIGA Medal for their contributions to the field of graphic design and visual communication, one of the highest honors possible for graphic designers. Patrick is also the Vice President of the Richard and Jean Coyne Family Foundation, and the foundation currently funds 17 programs managed by educational institutions and nonprofit trade organizations that help economically disadvantaged high school students develop portfolios to qualify for admission to art school and provide college scholarships for economically disadvantaged students to study graphic design. Welcome, Patrick. Thank you, Debbie. Thank you for having me here. Oh, I'm very excited to have you here. First of all, congratulations on your 50th anniversary, not, not your 50th birthday, your 50th anniversary of the magazine. That is quite, quite, quite an accomplishment, especially in these very, very tough times for publishing. Thank you. Yes, it's, uh, it's been a challenging uh, last year, and uh, we're still waiting for the older and wiser part of the 
formula. <laughs> well, so. aren't we all? Mm-hmm. Um, well, your first issue, it debuted in August 1959. Your parents started the magazine, and they first called it the Journal of Commercial Art. The magazine was the first U.S. magazine printed by Offset Lithography. It was also perfect bound, and since there were no commercial perfect binders available at that time, the issues, those first issues, were bound by hand. That's correct. And that is that is quite extraordinary. Did your parents ever tell you about what that experience was like? Can you share some of that with my listeners? Well, at, at the time, I mean, it was definitely a just a, a small family-run business, so we've... Uh, all of us kids, there's three of us, have been involved from the very beginning. I mean, when I was very little, I was sticking gold stickers on top of award certificates for half a penny apiece and stuffing magazines and envelopes to make the deadline to the post office, etc. So it's always been whatever it took to get the, get the job done. Now, your parents had a design firm. That's right. Before or during their launch of and their creation of this magazine. What made them decide in 1959 that the world needed a graphic design magazine? Well, I'd, I'd love to say it was for uh, lofty reasons, but frankly, my dad was kind of a, a techie of the time, and he wanted to uh, uh, open a litho prep film facility, but didn't have enough business from the, enough work from the design business to justify the expense of buying the equipment. So he came up with this idea of starting a magazine that would take up the slack. And and so, at what point in the career, in this in these two dual careers did the design firm fall away and the magazine take center stage? Oh, it was it was uh, within the first couple of years, and uh, I think my dad quickly realized the magazine was a lot more interesting to do. As much as he enjoyed doing design work, etc., this uh, the magazine just really opened up a whole world of opportunity, the opportunity to meet some terrific people from across the country, etc. So. Uh, it was pretty quick. He said, this is what I really want to do. And so I have some, some interesting stats. You've produced 366 issues, 158 annuals, 1,836 feature articles, and 1,508 articles. That's right. Now, I'm going to ask you an awful, awful question, but I have to. What stands out to you most? In, in terms of the... In terms of all of this. Oh, boy. I know. I'm sorry. It's an awful question, <laughs> but it has to be asked. Every single article is my favorite article. No, it's, it's, it's not like that. There's, uh, there's definitely different ones that, that stand out for different reasons. One of my favorite articles, though, was a, uh, a critical piece that we did on the uh, design of the L.A. Olympics. Uh, Larry Klein actually wrote it, and it was just a, an amazing expose about the, uh, the lack of business uh, savvy of the Los Angeles design community. Very interesting. And now, let's go back into your history for a bit. Okay. You studied design at the California College of the Arts. Then you worked as a graphic designer for Michael Mabry and for SBG Partners. First of all, what was it like to work for Michael? He's an amazing talent and uh, really one of the... Uh, I just admire his work so much because it just keeps evolving. I'm mm-hmm. so impressed that he tries to reinvent the wheel every time and do something new and different. So when I started there, though, he had just been out on his own for a couple of years, and uh, I basically worked there for about three months over the summer. And we've stayed friends since then. Now, 
Did you always know that you were going to work in the magazine with your family, or were you thinking when you were growing up, you know, I really want to be a dentist, you know, screw this publishing stuff? What was what was your relationship as with the magazine growing up? Well, I wanted to be a rock and roll star, but uh, you uh, did, yes. <laughs> I, I, you know, you know my my personal suspicion that I think most graphic designers really wanted to be rock and roll stars. Well, if I had Chip Kid's voice, I might have a shot at it. Isn't it amazing <laughs> what he's it's doing? Great. It's extraordinary. So, so you wanted to be a rock star. What what music? What kind of music? Do, or what kind of instrument do you play? Play the drums, just like Chip. Although, okay. <laughs> but uh, rock, R and B, you know, whatever. I was in bands from like fourth grade on, all the way through high school and then was playing semi-professionally once I got out of high school. So what made you decide to stop? No girlfriend wants to hear the same songs over and over every night and you're, you know, you're practicing three nights a week and performing four nights a week. I mean, there's no social life, okay. and especially if you're a drummer. I mean, if you're the front man, you have a chance, but, uh, <laughs> but not as a drummer. Unless so, you're Phil Collins, right? Right. right. <laughs> Again, wonderful singing voice, so that's not one of my skills. So I realized at that point that um, my other joy was doing graphic design, which I had always done. I mean, even as a kid doing logos and airbrushing shirts and stuff like that. So at least I had the chance. I tried the music thing and realized that wasn't it. And I'm really glad I did it because now I'd still be regretting that decision if I hadn't tried it. First. Yeah, I, I think it's better to try something and, and fail than not do it at all and never know. Right. Now, so you you decided to get a job in the design community as opposed to stay within your family and work at the magazine. Was your intention to get some experience and then come back into the fold? Or did you think, I don't know about this family thing. I want to do my own thing. Well, exactly. This was my, this was my dad's um, personal thing. And I always saw that as, as his vision and his baby. And I wanted to do something myself. I mean, father like son, I wanted to start my own business and essentially did. But when in 86, when he decided it was time to retire and said, well, if you're not interested, we're going to sell the magazine, then it was like, uh, yeah. and the light bulb went off. It's like, oh, my God, am I going to let this thing go? And what will somebody else do with it? Exactly. You know, the family legacy. Patrick, we have a caller on the phone. We have Gregory from New Jersey. Gregory, thank you so thank much you. for calling Design thank Matters. Thank you. I, I, I feel your pain, the age thing. I, I, oh, I know. Y'all. <laughs> at least I mustache was, hair on your face is acceptable. Uh, that's, that's exactly, and I was thinking exactly that. I thought, well, at least I don't have to worry. That's okay, unless it falls out in patches. Hey, <laughs> um, Patrick, I'm curious, um, because Debbie, Debbie started the question, actually, I was going to ask about you going to family business. Did, you, did your siblings follow suit? Uh, yes, we're the three of us are partners in the business. My really? sister handled the financial side and allowed me to focus on the product. Do you guys ever um, argue about stuff? <laughs> <laughs> we don't argue so much about the direction of the magazine. We may argue in terms of the the business and what's the the most appropriate response to a situation, et cetera. But but no, very few. Very little arguments. And again, we have very clearly defined roles, so there's not, not a lot of overlap. So it's not a, a Dallas or Dynasty type <laughs> No, none of scenario. this in intrigue happening in the back. <laughs> no, nothing like that at all. So was your father um, uh, happily surprised and relieved that, that you were going to take over? I think relieved. I think that's the best way to put it. I, I, I know he was you know, excited that... Uh, uh, we wanted to get involved, but uh, it was uh, the transition was a little challenging, just because I'd been my own boss for several years, and then suddenly becoming 
you know, the associate editor, art director, and I had my own ideas about how things should be done. So it was a, it was a challenging transition. Well, I think by doing that, I think it's a great thing you did it because it, it's so important um, to perpetuate um, those traditions and family businesses. It's certainly what, what the whole country is founded on. So um, I hope there's more of that. I really do. I, I didn't do it, and uh, I didn't follow in the footsteps of our family business. And um, when my father sold my grandparents' building, I think it's something I never got over. So uh, I'm glad that you did that. That's a great thing. Well, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. It's a thank great you for honor. calling, Gregory. Yeah. Bye-bye. So now your father sold the business to you and your siblings. So tell us about the roles that you each have now within the organization. Because your mother is also still working at the magazine. She's still working. She's 81 years old. That's right. And so what, what is her purview at the magazine? She's the executive editor. We have an editorial staff of four. And then uh, Ann Telford, our, our former managing editor, is our editor at large. So there's technically five of us on the editorial staff. So it's my mother, myself. Rebecca Bedrosian, who's our managing editor, and uh, Sue Garibaldi, who's our technology editor. My brother is our chief financial chief financial officer. Uh, essentially, he comes in once a quarter and audits the books. We have an in-house controller who takes care of the day-to-day accounting, but then he just comes in and checks everything out, makes some adjustments, produces the quarterly statement. And my sister does uh, essentially as an assistant auditor helping my brother out. So in addition to being the editor and the designer, are you also the head of the business? Technically, yes. I'm the president. Okay. (laughs) So you have three very, very distinct roles, all of which are overlapping, but all of which have a very, very different mindset to them. Do you have a lead gene that you feel sort of keeps you forward in, in one particular area of interest, or do you feel like you're just equally splitting your time in three ways? No, 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 absolutely. It's all about the magazine, the product. It's all about the connection that we have with our readership, and that's always what my focus is. So mm-hmm. we, sometimes we'll look at things and say, well, sure, this will cost more, but it's worth it, or you know, there's ways we could save money, but I think we would actually it would be detrimental to our brand. Have you ever worried about the magazine continuing? Have you ever worried? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I guess that's, a, that's an easy answer. <laughs> oh boy, especially these days. Well, yeah, it's a real challenge. So, so let's we'll talk about what's happening right at the moment in a moment. Um, but prior to this particular time in our culture, were you ever worried that the magazine might not continue? Uh, no, not until recently. Not until recently. <laughs> so so let's talk a little bit about the, the recent... Oh, we have another caller. Let's take that caller okay. because I know we have some special guests calling in as well, and okay. I don't want them to be too bumped up against each other. But we have Isabel. Isabel, thank you for calling Design Matters. Sure. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Patrick. Hi, Isabel. Patrick, I was wondering, how can someone get their work into communication art? Is there a process, or do you have, does your work have to be invited? Do you have like, people who look at things and recommend? Uh, all of those things, but uh, really the, the best thing to do is just to send the work to us. And um, if you submit uh, uh, digital files to, uh, let's see, if you go to www.comarts.com slash submissions, it will actually explain the process. Oh, Okay. We get, you know, maybe 10,000 unsolicited projects a year, and from those we certainly do pick some to publish. So I definitely would invite anybody to submit work. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Sure, thank you. Okay. Well, that's, that's a, a very interesting question, Patrick, because I have to say that prior to the show, I always get 
um, emails from listeners that want me to ask a particular question to my guests, and I received that question oh, okay. <laughs> about 400 times. <laughs> ask Patrick if there's a secret to getting the work into the magazine, and I think that the reason why so many people want to know is because it is so difficult to get into the magazine. It is a very, very high-end magazine, and I think that um, it's always the best of the best. So tell me, how did the magazine know how to get to that reputation and pick the best of the best that gets you there? Um, well, initially we had uh, my father uh, arranged to get a group of contributing editors in different parts of the country to suggest people to profile and, and invite people locally to submit work to CA. But then, um, and this was a, a brilliant business stroke as well, uh, my dad came up with the idea of starting an annual competition. And that's what's really made the CA's reputation possible, bringing in you know, top judges from around the country and getting as many submissions as possible, and then from that, calling from that what's considered the, the best of the best at any point in time. So in addition to that, so here you have this magazine that has a very, very um, high reputation, a very, very coveted uh, place in the design community. Uh, it's difficult for people to get into. Um, you are also, I think, a fairly deliberately undesigned magazine. Um, could you talk to us a little bit about that? Well, you know, I've, I guess I've always thought of CA as being sort of like a, a museum of uh, design, museum of modern art, if you will. And uh, it's really my preference, and this is certainly something my father started from the beginning, was to step back and let the work come forward. Uh, we, we're just showcasing so many wonderful projects. The last thing I want to do is get in the way of them with the reader. Mm -hmm. So we keep things fairly minimal, fairly simple, and just try to show the work as large and as colorful and you know as bright, beautiful as possible. So let's get back to what we were talking about, the, the difficulty of this culture that we're living in. I think that the, the publishing world is really being hit in two ways. One, the transfer of information in a much more technological format, and so maybe not quite the same need to have the book or the magazine um, in the hands of the reader and, and more on, in an online, uh, reading it in online or in a Kindle or something like that, as well as this perfect storm of the economy and everybody pulling back. Tell me how you're managing through this. Well, we've we're doing several different things. Um, yeah, we're certainly seeing a, a dramatic reduction in, in advertising. Um, and, and this goes back to the beginning of media and, and what I consider to be kind of an a uncomfortable relationship between media and advertising. Rather than uh, uh, try to get readers to help support the product, uh, publishers have relied on advertising to subsidize that. Mm -hmm. Consequently, people have come to expect information and content to be cheap or free. And uh, now it's coming back to bite us in the ass. Yeah. So uh, every time the uh, economy takes a nosedive, then publishers are certainly are, you know, being hit hard. And uh, readers are expecting to pay $10 for an annual subscription so or something like that. Yeah. So they're not really paying the true price of creating and distributing the content. Now, on the design blog, Design Observer, they have been keeping a, a fairly close count of all the magazines that are closing, and they've titled this um, tally, The End of Print. <laughs> and I, I wonder how you feel about the accuracy of that. Do you really feel that, that 
there is a time in our not so distant future where the end of print is imminent? No, I don't think so. I still think there's there's certain groups of people that that still appreciate the you know high resolution print quality and tactile uh, feel of of printed material. So I still think that'll be there. But what's happening instead is that we're we're branching out into many many different media. I mean medium. I mean we're reading blogs, reading news online, reading a, a physical book, and doing you know checking out our uh, our smartphones, etc. So. We're spending more time now with media than we ever have. It's just that it's more, much more widely distributed than it used to be. Now, Patrick, we have uh, one of the contributors to the magazine on the line, somebody that has not only contributed to the magazine, but has also been featured in the magazine numerous, numerous times, and somebody that has truly contributed to the entire design community and the world at large with his great talent. We have Milton Glazer on the line. Milton, thank you so much for calling Design Matters. Hi, how are Hi. you doing? I'm good. I'm really good. I'm so thrilled that you're joining us, so thrilled that you're part of this conversation. Um, I don't know if you were listening to the show before you got on, but we were talking a little bit about the um, state of the economy, the state of the publishing business, and I'm wondering if you have um, an opinion on that that you might want to share with us. Oh God! I know. <laughs> you know, it's um, every time I've ever given a lecture anywhere, and I've been doing it for over fifty years, right? Ah, fifty years. One of the questions 50. at the end is always, "Well, what's what's going to happen next?" I right. mean, where do you see design in the next five years, or the next ten years, or the next whatever the increment is? And I, at a certain point, I said, "What do you want to know?" I mean. So what if you knew? Suppose you knew that Helvetica was going to be the next typeface that would be first in popularity in America. What would you do with that information? This, this kind of anxiety about um, where the field is going or what's going to happen ends up being alarmingly pointless. <laughs> I mean, you, there really isn't very much you could do. I suppose if you knew that that uh, renderings of uh, mechanical objects was going to become a big field of uh, activity, then you could start studying immediately. But that isn't the way the design field goes or anything else, I suspect. So the first thing to do, it seems to me, is to diminish the apprehensions and to say we don't know exactly where the design field is going or where anything else is going. And as uh, the Buddhists say, live in the present, right? <laughs> And simply try to do the best work you can at the moment of time that you're in. But there is so much hand-wringing and despair over what's ahead that it makes you, it makes you nuts and without realizing that all of it is an illusion anyhow. So my, um, my response to people who want me to predict what's going to be happening in this field over the next day, I have not the faintest idea. Nor do I care. Right. Well, that is a product of the uh, elderly as well. But <laughs> nevertheless, I, I don't. I, I I really don't know how. If you knew what was going to happen, you could adequately prepare for it. Even though we all have the impression that we could. Now, Milton, I think that there's no question that in the last seven or eight years, with the um, popularity of getting information online 
there has been this continual prediction of of the print um, demise. Now, you were one of the founders of New York Magazine. Um, did you do you see there being more dire predictions now than there might have been 30 years ago? Has it has has there always been this sense of things are changing, the future is going to be different, and we're all doomed? Or do you feel that that's something that's really a byproduct of the technological revolution that we're living in? Well, I think it's increased dramatically. But I can remember when I first started designing magazines, uh, you know, 35 or 40 years ago. Invariably, the brief was always the same. Somebody would say to you, you know, our younger readers are losing the habituation of reading magazines and print. What should we do in response to that? That was always, and I'm talking about significant amount of time, almost a half century ago, always a concern of people in publishing, which is not to say that it has not, you know, become even a greater problem than it was then. But for the last half century, this tendency has uh, basically begun where an older generation and a younger generation basically use different sources for their information resource. So this is not a new idea except for the fact that it is accelerating and more people are conscious of it. On the other hand, uh, remember that less trees will be used, less paper will be used, there will be less waste. This could be the best, best thing that could possibly happen to the world in general and our ecological concern, although that doesn't seem very comforting to all of us who design magazines and our editors and all the rest of it. Well, maybe it'll just force all of the magazines that are left to be that much better. But that's uh, also a possibility. But, you know, all technological changes of this kind exact a price. And uh, what has happened all through human history is, you know, the species adapts. And we all are capable of adaptation, although there's always some immediate pain. Um, Milton, there's, you have a, a really wonderful interview in the upcoming 50th anniversary issue of CA. I haven't um, seen it. Um, I have a copy here in front of me, an advanced copy that Patrick was very kind enough to give me. Oh, great. And uh, Kathy Bleck uh, interviews you. And mm -hmm. In the interview, you stated um, a line that I've been really pondering for the last couple of days. This is what you say. I came to a decision not too long ago that in your mind the experience of art and the experience of meditation are very related, that they each free you from the incessant chatter of the brain you can't control and allow you to experience reality without the interference of judgment. And I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about more about that, um, if this is something that is a decision that you came to not too long ago. How did you come upon it? Well, I've been circling around this subject for all my life in terms of uh, what we usually hear of as a distinction between commercial art and fine art. And also that the word fine in, the, in fine art, which I always review with my class, means uh, fundamentally that the um, impurities have been uh, refined out of the form. Fining is a term that's used in metallurgy. It means you heat something so hot that the impurities burn off and all you have is pure gold. So it's very curious that, the, uh, that it was this search for pure gold that basically moved us into this idea of the metaphysical content of art. But I finally realized that 
you can't apply that uh, simplistically to the question of what art does. And I, all my life I'm looking for this idea. So what is the distinction between high art, low art, commercial art, fine art, and so on? And I decided that finally art's purpose was to make us attentive, that if you had to look at art as a way of, um, of survival, because if art didn't have a survival purpose. It would have disappeared a long time ago. Art, in fact, is a survival mechanism. So then the question is, well, how does it help us survive? It helps us by making us attentive. We pay attention to art, and we learn something about what we are and who we are and what's real through the experience of art in a way that I basically has no equivalence in anything else. And, of course, meditation is intended to produce the same results. It means that you stop listening to the chatter in your brain and you attempt to observe what is in front of you clearly without preconditions or uh, already knowing too much about the subject. And so it seems to me, this is a, a bit of a leap, that the, the function of art, which is one in which you... Um, become more conscious of what is real and the function of meditation are identical. And if that is true, and so far it's merely a theory, mm -hmm. that the both experiences lead us to a state of mind that eliminates prejudgment from experience. As you know, the, the brain is so extraordinary that when you anticipate something being anything before you experience it, it becomes what you think it will be. Yes. So that idea, which seems to me to be a, a very good way to separate what is art from what is not art, which is to say, in its presence, are you more aware of reality, of what we call real, and less in the possession of illusion than you are without its presence. I, I think every time you look at a great work of art, um, a painting by Rembrandt, you look at it, you basically reform your idea of what is real. And that, I suppose, understanding and acknowledging what is real is, in fact, one of the best survival mechanisms that the species has ever ever imagined. Well, I think that that is one of the most wonderful and optimistic definitions of art I've I've ever heard. <laughs> Speaking of a great great works of art, Milton, I I am very lucky to have a copy of your new book, Drawing Is Thinking, which is an extraordinary book. It's a collection of some of your most remarkable paintings and illustrations and there are other than the introduction there are no words in this book um, tell us why well you know when I was designing uh, a museum installation and trying to figure out where the captioning material was and usually it's next to the painting or work of art and I realized that if you read the text which is to say the painter was born in 1840 and grew up and blah, 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 blah. When you stood in front of the painting, all you could think about is when the painter was born and what time it was painted and all the rest, and all of which prevented you 
from experiencing the painting, which is to say the lyrical or the narrative or the subject-oriented text for a painting or any visual works preempts the possibility for you experiencing the painting because you're involved in the literature. And the brain works differently when it is logical and involved in uh, narration. In order to experience what's in front of you, you have to eliminate the narration. And if the text is right, you have no chance. And I experienced this myself. When I went up to see a show of paintings or something and I read the, carefully read each block of text, I realized I couldn't see the bloody paintings. And I would leave the show and have no recollection of what I was looking at, but I would remember what the text said. And I realized that uh, you have to separate the experience and the sensations of looking at something and being in its presence from the story about it. And so I thought in this book, what I would do is do a series of works, more like a musical theme, where they would fundamentally be abstract. And what you perceive is not the story, but the uh, invisible relationship between all visual forms. So you would make it up transition from one picture to another that you weren't conscious of. I mean, you wouldn't put those into words, but the transition occurs nevertheless. The way transitions occur in music, where you don't have to attach a description to them. You just know that in listening, something is changing. And so my idea for this book was to do a series of illustrations, basically like a, a movie without a storyline. Well, you would experience would be the abstraction that occurs uh, between any two pictures you put next to one another because you, you could take any two pictures in the universe, put them next to each other, and the mind will discover relationships. Right. Well, I think it's interesting, especially given the previous conversation that I was having with Patrick about the undesigned nature of the magazine in an effort to let the work speak for itself. And so I... I love the idea of taking two different ideas and putting them next to each other and seeing what comes out of that. Milton, thank you so much for calling. Um, it's just such an honor to have you part of this conversation, part of the magazine, part of our community, and, and just appreciate so much you taking time out from your work to give us a call here on Design Matters. Well, you're more than kind. Milton, your copy's in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Patrick. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. Patrick, we have another caller on the line. We have Robert, who has been very patiently holding. Uh, Robert has a question for you. Robert, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Patrick. Uh, Hi, Robert. Uh, it's Robert Peters calling from uh, Winnipeg, oh. Canada. Hi, how are you? Uh, fine. Uh, first off, congratulations on 50 years with CA. Uh, that's unbelievable. Yeah, it is. <laughs> um, Thank you so much. I felt quite privileged to be able to contribute uh, to your magazine over the last 15 years or so. Well, before you ask Patrick your question, do you have a, a, a special CA story that you could share with us since you are a contributor to the magazine as well, some inside story you could share with my readers, I mean, my, my listeners? Uh, well, uh, there are probably more more than a few. Uh, Pick the juices. <laughs> uh, Tact would be the question. Um, maybe I'll go back to uh, just an incident. Um, I guess it's 15 years ago that I was in in Moscow um, on a on a design jury, and um, sort of had my first assignment from CA at the time. 
And Which was? was what was it? Well, it was it was to do a feature on uh, graphic design in Russia. Oh wow! And, what a and great that's job something to that. Get. <laughs> How does somebody get that kind of a job? That's great. Um, it. Um, I remember being picked up at the airport by a number of uh, ex KGB agents because they were all recently unemployed, and um, it was a very interesting week that we spent uh, in Moscow. Um, sort of navigating between uh, Chechen rebels who had turned into mafiosi and uh, and with authorities and so on, but uh, that that was the first opportunity that I had had to contribute something to CA, and I was delighted that uh, CA has opened um, its its doors, I would say, to the rest of the world. But I had a question for Patrick, if I may. Yes, of course, please. Uh, and and uh, you know maybe this is maybe this is the obvious question, but. Uh, certainly, the rest of the world has, uh, I think, uh, renewed an interest in the U.S. following the election of Obama now. And I'm wondering, Patrick, whether you see this in any way changing or broadening uh, CA's worldwide presence and or focus or agenda in the future. Oh, Can you absolutely. Speak to that? Um, well, it, this is also something that we're about to uh, launch by the end of next month is basically an online version of the magazine. It's always been just very expensive to ship the issue, the, ship the magazine overseas. So uh, the uh, price of an annual subscription is prohibitive. So this is one thing that we're trying to do, we're hoping to do, to actually reach out and, and uh, get more distribution out in the rest of the world and consequently get more material, more content coming to us from the rest of the world as well. So I'm very excited about this uh, new development coming up. So, so tell us about that. You will have online an entire archive of the publication back to 2004? That's right. This will cover feature articles, uh, columns, and annual winners. Now, you can certainly view them uh, contained as an article as, you, as they were originally published, but you'll also have the opportunity to view the work ac uh, across all issues. Say if you want to just for search, search for a particular uh, media or a person. So if you just want to look at trademarks, if you just want to look at the work of Milton Glaser, it will assemble everything for you and, and return the results. So we're excited about this kind of deconstructing the magazine in a way that so people can access their content over time. And this will be from starting at the January 2004 and then moving forward. So over time, this archive will just become larger and larger. So do you hope that to be able to go back I, Beyond be nice 2004 to, to the very, very beginning to archive the entire 50 years? Uh, I, I would love to do it, but honestly, most of that material is not in a digital form. And we just simply, with a small staff, don't, just don't have the capability to make that happen. I would, I would love to do it. But just uh, from 2004 forward, we're talking about 7,500 projects, um, something like 11, 12,000 images, and 20, 21,000 people and firms wow. have been have been a part of some project that we have published in the last five years. It's just overwhelming. So you plan to launch that in March, and if people want to look for it, they can go to comarts.com. Right. My guess is probably going to be the third or fourth week of March. Okay. <laughs> we're still in development. Well, thank you for calling, Robert. No worries. Thank you, Robert. Um, we, we have another of our special guests on the line. We have the magnificent Cheryl Heller. Cheryl, thank you for calling Design Matters and joining us in today's conversation. Thank you, Debbie. It's so great to have you on the line. Hi, Cheryl. Um, hi, Patrick. 
So, so tell us about the relationship, Cheryl, that, that you have with the magazine. I know you've been featured in the magazine numerous, numerous times. You've also written for the magazine. Tell us about what made you decide to start writing as well as designing and, and pursuing both of these aspects in your career. Well, it's almost as though CA has marked the evolution of my career coincidentally and has sort of allowed me to benchmark all of the things that I was trying to do as they happened. Um, and, and I was thinking about it. It's been so wonderful to think about the relationship that um, that I've had with CA over the years because there are very few relationships that are sustained this way. Uh, but in the very beginning, the first time I had any work accepted, uh, Patrick, it was your father who, <laughs> who said, um, he said something about what I had done and said, it showed such marvelous restraint. <laughs> now, Cheryl, what was the piece? What was your very first piece that was ever published in CA? It was it was a campaign for S.P. Warren. Okay. A print campaign. But I was thinking, you know, because at that age, I was thinking, what what is my style and what is my voice and what is my work about? And the fact that your father said, huh, is that something I should be working for? Should I do more? That's 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 my voice. Cheryl, we're having a, t a tough time hearing you. Are you are you speaking um, on a speakerphone? I am speaking with an earphone. Can you okay. hear me now? Yeah, it's better, much better now. Thank you. Okay. Uh, so that that was the first, and that was sort of my um, my my verification as a designer. And then there was the profile of Helen Green, yes, which was uh, an entirely different level. And then Patrick, you asked. I had presented at the AIGA National Conference in Chicago um, a topic called What Women Are Worth. And you asked me to write. And, of course, you could not have known that I had never really written anything to be published before. <laughs> but I said, sure. And so that was one of my first published articles. And then as I um, – and then I judged the design annual, and then I judged a couple years later the photography annual. And then um, I guess there have now been two articles – published on um, uh, on the design revolution and another one on the art of communication. So it's been this extraordinary sort of marking of an evolution and, um, and this really wonderful, as I say, verification of, uh, of work all the way through. I don't know why I have this feeling, but I think about in, in my life, John Updike and the Rabbit books, just having somebody... Um, write that series of books and um, and ha and having a lifetime marked in that way that, you know, as, as Rabbit was young, we were young and, as, young and as Rabbit was getting older. And I feel like in a funny way, we've I've grown up with CA. So I really appreciate this chance to tell you that. Well, thank you. Thank oh. you so much. Cheryl, thank you. I have to tell you that the very first time that I became aware of you was from the article in CA about Heller Breen. And uh, that that has always stayed with me. I guess you have these these moments of clarity in a person's life where you look at something and you remember where you are and you remember what you're doing and sometimes you even remember what you're wearing. But it's suddenly you're telegraphically um, moved, and and that's the way I felt when I saw your work in in CA, Cheryl. Well, it was a pretty big moment for me too. Now, what I was looking at your your website today, and you had a, a, a wonderful quote on it that I, I wanted to ask you about. 
you you wrote about Einstein's belief that the significant problems we face cannot be solved with the same level of thinking we used when we created them. Yes. And, and you believe that that's, while it's well known, it's not well integrated into most businesses. And I was wondering if you might be able to give the listeners today some advice about how they can take that belief and make it more integrated into the work that they're doing, particularly in this, in this very challenging time for everyone. Well, I think designers have a leg up on that. And what I was referring to is if you think about the structure of most businesses, most corporations, they're, they're still stuck in the model of the industrial age with silos and, and a top-down hierarchy. And what, what I was referring to is that I see so – and I think because now I've moved into um, call it sustainability or corporate social responsibility – with both feet, and Patrick, we have to talk about that and what the next milestone is, right? Because <laughs> that's the next evolution. But, you know, business is, is the best leverage to change the world, and it's also right now doing, causing the greatest um, damage. And I think the role that creative people can have with business is to help them just imagine a totally different way to solve the problems and a totally different way to do business and a different way to live and that we need to leapfrog all of these old um, old solutions that, that, you know, we just keep logging, trying to come up with a different answer, which is also Einstein's definition of insanity. Then mm. <laughs> you do the same thing thinking you're going to get a different outcome. I um, often say, though, that, that that's also the definition of hope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's my optimism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but I, but I think you know people who are in the creative field have an opportunity to have a much greater leadership role um, because of that. And I, and I really think that companies are—they're feeling so much pain now. They are ready to listen to mm-hmm. some uh, unusual solutions and unusual voices. Imagining the future, I, I think designers can do that very well. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, Cheryl, thank you so much for calling in. It's such a it's such an honor to have you part of the conversation and and here with us today. Well, I'm thrilled to do it, and Patrick, congratulations! What an extraordinary accomplishment. Thank you, thank you so much, and and it's because of contributors like you that we've gotten where we where we are today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Take care. Oh, bye. bye. Um, Patrick, we have another caller. We've gotten a lot of oh, people man. calling you today. Uh, we have Allison from New Jersey. Allison, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, how are you? Good. We're Hi, good. Allison. We're good. Do you have a question for Patrick? I do have a question for Patrick. I'm wondering how you choose candidates to profile in CA. Oh, boy. We keep, uh, we keep long lists of, of uh, designers, agencies, illustrators, photographers, new media developers, etc. And we're, when we ever sit down to plan the next issue, we're always looking at what we've done in the past and what can we do different. So we're looking for geographic location, discipline, anything that would, you know, create a, a nice mix, a nice mixture. We try to avoid focusing on um, showing the same discipline of work from issue to issue or same location. So we just mix it up as much as possible. Some people have asked, so do you, is the list like in chronological order? I mean, does your number finally come up? And, and frankly, we, we just look at the, the potential features as a group and decide what we think would make the best mix. You sit down like in the beginning of the year and you try to figure out a list and... I'd love, to say, I'd love to say we do that. We, <laughs> we, we do it a couple months before the issue is due. So 
we, we have several editorial meetings over the course of the year. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Bye. you for calling Design Matters, Allison. So what are some of the crazy things that people, I, mean, I can't imagine that there, that there aren't crazy things that people have tried to do to get into the magazine. I know that there was a, a young man that, that sang a song to you <laughs> that he put up on YouTube, um, and he used uh, he, he created new lyrics for the melody from a, a very popular boys band song. That's right. Did did that get him into the magazine? Well, we actually we uh, posted a, a link to his uh, video on our on our website. So why why is it so difficult? I mean, it, it seems to be the pinnacle of a designer's career in many ways. Um, communication arts, print magazine, the two magazines that are the holy grail of of getting into for uh, designers. Why is it? Why do you have this reputation of being so difficult well, to get into? Well, it's it's a matter of space and it's a matter of of the material. I mean, typically, ninety percent of the work that's produced is is mediocre at best. Ten percent is is good work. Maybe a third of that is great, and that's what we try to focus on. Literally, this we see the same experience every year with the annual competitions. Mm -hmm. About ten percent makes it through the screening round, ten to twenty percent, and then from that, you know, a third of that ultimately gets into the book. And it's it's just so interesting to see this pattern continue uh, over time. There's always that cream of the crop, yeah. and regardless of the amount of content we get. That's uh, that's where we're picking from. But I just wanted to say, though, um, I'm always amazed at uh, design firms that don't realize to get that exposure, they have to actually do some effort, do some right. publicity, and, mm -hmm. and send work to us, send work to print, and, and all the other publications. It's not that hard. It's just very few design firms seem to understand how to do, how to market themselves. You realize you're now going to be deluged with work. That's when you okay. Get to your That's office. all right. Now, in terms of the strange things, is there anything that anybody ever did that was really kooky that ended up getting them into the magazine? Oh, boy, I can't think of anything in particular, but, uh, yeah, there's certainly been some kooky things. There's, uh, and, and, you know, just as a, a note to everybody, please, no confetti. In the box, <laughs> no, you know, no, to those plastic peanuts. It, exactly, it ends up everywhere. Yeah. So much, much better to just uh, keep the work, uh, keep the work simple and forward, and and uh, don't take too much time with the the wrapping. So now, in addition to putting all of CA from 2004 forward online, I noticed that you also started your own blog, oh. PatrickCoinBlog.com. Um, what made you decide to do that? Well, I was just trying to, to explore uh, social media, social networking, etc. Um, it's been an interesting experiment, but I'm not so sure I'm going to keep it going. No? Honestly, I'm, I'm really excited about the new content that we're going to be putting on the web. Uh, I think we're looking at doing possibly a Facebook group, etc. So it's, it's just always boiled down to the amount of time that I have in the day. And, uh, you know, a blog probably, I mean, a good blog is going to take uh, an hour to two a day. And I just don't have it. So here we are standing at what is likely going to be remembered as a really defining time in our world. What do you hope for the future for communication arts, for the design community and, the bus and business at large? Well, I, and Cheryl was alluding to this, we, we need some breakthrough ideas and we need some creative thinking. And uh, I certainly think this is the design profession is probably better suited for that than, than anybody else. And conflict equals opportunity. Crisis Absolutely. is opportunity. So I think we're all looking to figure out what the next model, successful model is, both for business and 
certainly in creativity as well. well we're we're going to try to mix something up between the print and online, you know, try to become much more of a hybrid approach to visual communication. Well, thank you for producing this magazine for the last 50 years and for giving us this inspiration that will buoy us into the future. Great. Thank, thank you, you Patrick. I've come to the end of our broadcast today. I'd like to thank the wonderful Patrick Coyne for joining me today. Happy 50th anniversary. Thank you also to Milton Glazer and Cheryl Heller for joining our conversation and for Pamela Williams for helping so much with this special show. I'd also like to thank the staff and my partners at Sterling Brands, especially Lisa Grant and Jen Simon. Thank you for listening and remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters. Right here on the bottom line in business talk. Voice America Business.